0: hey there thanks for tuning into the podcast on this episode our co-host turns guest on the show mohit has recently got his private pilot's license and we chat with him to get a glimpse into what it takes to get a pilot license and he shares his experience and his journey throughout the process so fasten your seat belts this is going to be a fun one Hi, this is Karan. Hi, this is Mohit. Hey, yeah, this is Aditya. And welcome to the Boiled Egg Podcast. Three,
1: 2, 1. Oh my god.
2: You see, I feel like editing.
0: Hey, guys, and welcome to the Boiling Podcast. So Mohit got his uh, pilot's license a couple of weeks back. <gasps> 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 Ooh, and there have <gasps> been a lot of people asking how they could go about it, how the ex- whole experience was. So we just thought we'll do a, uh, an episode focusing on that. Mohit can share his experience and we all can learn how we could get a pilot's license. So welcome to the podcast, Mohit.
1: Thank you. I am very honored. And I'm very humbled to be joining this uh, Bread Omelette podcast. <laughs> 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 oh, sorry. Is it Bread Omelette? No, it is Boiled Leg.
0: Okay. It's Boiled Legs. We are healthy.
1: Boiled Leg podcast. Very amazing. Very fantastic. Very nice. Thank you.
0: So, from what I know, this has been a lifelong obsession of yours to get a pilot's license. And uh, you finally achieved it. So, tell us, how do you feel, Mohit?
1: I feel elated, very fantastic over the world on cloud nine. (laughs) Literally, now I can be on cloud nine.
0: Can go to cloud
1: nine. I can go to cloud nine. But yeah, I mean, as most of you guys know, because you're friends from, from a very long time ago, I've always wanted to become a pilot. Because of random circumstances, like A, I wanted to join the Air Force, but I just wasn't good at passing tests <laughs> one We all know. so that <laughs> so uh, trying to get in through like National Defense Academy and uh, other sources was like definitely a no go because I just was bad at passing tests so that's number one number two I gave myself like a pity reason saying that I have glasses so I can't become a pilot <laughs> so like ah it's not gonna happen anyway the air force is not gonna take me in so for people who are listening, if anyone has glasses and want to join the air force, even if you get LASIK done, you cannot join the air force. Uh, you need to have natural six by six vision. So yeah, that was out of the window as well. For me. So for one day, I just sat in the bedroom and cried. I was like, oh. <laughs> you know that scene from um, yeah, but, you know, you know that scene from Queen where. Uh, What's the name? Gangana arena out sits and she's like, my little guy, my barba way, so that was me. <laughs> because one of my uh, Air Force uncles like came and spoke to my dad saying, Yo, you should tell this kid it's not gonna happen. <laughs> so Keep yeah, that, reality. Grip. Yeah, so that's when it hit me and my dad was like, Listen, it's not gonna happen. That's it. I cried for just one day. Next day I was like, yeah, I don't have to give an exam. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell? But pretty much from there on, I kind of gave up the dream of joining the Air Force. This was obviously around like 11th, 12th grade-ish. That's the time when you're like 16 or 17, where you you are at the right age to get into uh, the Air Force and stuff. So I gave up uh, dreams of joining the Air Force. And I was like, okay, now next could be, you know, commercial flying. You know, flying for an airline and stuff like that. The biggest problem... A barrier to entry for that is it's shit expensive. I mean, especially in India, actually in any part of the world, if you want to learn to become a commercial pilot, one, it's gonna cost you easily over 20 to 25 lakhs in Indian rupees, probably even more. And this I was talking about like in 2008, 2009, uh, it's, it's probably a lot higher now. And anywhere around the world, i think right now in the us it's north of 60 to 70000 uh, dollars until so this is like going all the way from learning your basics of flying to learning to fly like a multi engine aircraft and then an airline sort of uh, taking you in getting type rated in sort of like uh, a jet in engine a passenger or
0: get, airline or something
1: exactly yeah getting type rated in the types of aircraft that they have so right from 0 to You know, flying for a commercial airline could cost you roughly $70,000, which is a lot of money. So yeah, that's been like the biggest barrier to entry for me. And obviously, like, yeah, even that sort of felt pretty far out to to sort of get into that space. So then, uh, so I obviously gave up the dream because I didn't have the money to sort of fund my commercial pilot flying. And uh, if you look at comparisons between India and the U.S., US is obviously considered the gold standard for uh, flight training. Yeah, and I wanted to learn to fly in the US because the time it takes for you to earn your wings is a lot shorter compared to what it takes in India. Did a bunch
0: Why of is it weeks. shorter in the US in terms of the time to earn your wings?
1: Purely because they have more aircrafts and they have more instructors.
0: Okay. And they and have in more. Yeah, India, that's a problem.
1: Yeah, in India, that's a problem. So if you look at the US itself, and I wish I could show you a map. If I show you like Google Maps, in a radius of 50 kilometers, there are 10 airports. These
0: are smaller ones.
1: Yeah, these are small airports. These are like small airfields. The bigger ones are obviously, so now I'm in California. So there's San Francisco and San Jose airports, which are like the bigger commercial airports. And then there are smaller airports by cities. So Mountain View has its own airport. Uh, I mean, Mountain View does have an airfield. It's actually a military airfield, but there's a more like a private airfield in Palo Alto. There's one uh, a little ahead of Palo Alto in San Mateo, San Carlos. So it's like between every 10 or 15 miles, there is an airport. So you have more access to airfields, more access to airplanes, because there are a lot more flying clubs. Uh, And more access to flight instructors. Now, if you look at India, most of the big airports are like the big public airports. There aren't necessarily a lot of small private airfields. Not private, even like public airfields. There aren't smaller public airfields with flying clubs. It's either the
0: airports, which are the commercial airports, or it's the military airports.
1: Military, exactly.
0: Military air bases or whatever.
1: Yep. Right. So... uh, so yeah, that's why it's a lot shorter in the US, just uh, by virtue of the number of aircrafts that you have and the number of instructors that you have. And so I did a bunch of research around like when I just got out of my 12th and realized that it was too far out and I didn't have the money to, to get into commercial flying. So that's when I sort of, at that point, hung my boots and gave up the dream of ever wanting to become a pilot. I was like, okay, this is not going to happen. I probably need to figure something else out. And so from there on, All the way to, so then I joined like Facebook, started earning money, didn't even think about uh, flying as like an option. But then after I moved to the US, earned a bit of money. uh, And then in 2018, I realized that, okay, I think I can, you know, take up this hobby of like getting my private license. And I did the math and found out that, okay, it's going to cost me quite a bit. But at the end of the day, it's worth it. I can do it. And it is China pretty accessible. wishes
0: coming through.
1: Yeah, and it was like pretty accessible because there was an airfield like just 10 minutes away from where I live right now. Uh, and when I googled flying clubs and aircrafts, there was like a a really long list. So that I had shit ton of options to filter through. And yeah, 2018, mid-2018 is when I made the decision to learn to fly. I did a little bit of homework as to which club I want to join. And then in October is when I signed up and went for my first Discovery flight. And then now, two years later, I finally got my license. So that's been the journey in a nutshell.
2: Awesome sauce. So so, just run us through some uh, numbers, right? Like, how long is this course, and how much does it cost? And post this. What do you plan I mean do you do you plan to fly on weekends or what do you plan to do with with your license now that you can you can fly pretty much whenever you want to So how, how do you sort of go about that?
1: So I'll answer the, the second part of the question first which is uh, right now my license is limited to flying in something called uh, VFR conditions. Now VFR means visual flight rules. Okay. Which means that I can only fly in clear weather. So when the sky is blue, it's not raining, and it's not foggy, that's when I can fly. Obviously, now, like, I want to fly over weekends. I want to just take my friends around, you know, for, like, tours around the Bay Area and stuff. Uh, So that's what I started doing. Next step in terms of training, I want to get my IFR license or certification, which means instrument flight rating. That means that I can I can start All flying weather. above the clouds. Exactly, I can fly in uh, like rain, fog. I don't necessarily have to use markers on the ground to navigate or assess like where my position is relative to the ground. So that's obviously like the next uh, step that I want to take as part of my training, and potentially after that. I want to get trained in a multi-engine aircraft. So right now, I can only fly a single-engine aircraft. But after getting ifr maybe I want to jump to a multi-engine aircraft. So then I can fly a bigger aircraft, carry more number of people over longer distances. So yeah, all of this might take another two years easily. Um, and are to... these
2: like following up, you know, your the things that you've mentioned, do these cost as much as your uh, main license again, all over again, each level or...
1: Oh, so yeah, 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 for sure, okay. for sure, uh, like IFR is definitely going to cost, uh, so yeah, I'll, I'll cover like the cost of training as like the second part to your, uh, the first part of your question. So training is, bro- the costs are broken up into two areas, one is the cost to rent an aircraft for every hour, and the cost uh, of uh, the instructor. It totally depends as to like what type of aircraft you want to rent. If I had to give you an example, you can learn to drive in a Mercedes, which will cost you a lot more to rent, or you can learn to drive in say a Toyota, which is gonna be a lot cheaper. I picked something in the middle. So inherently my cost of training went up because I picked a slightly more expensive aircraft. It had better avionics, you know, instead of having like dial gauges, it had sort of uh, digital instruments. Uh, so that increases the cost of uh, rental per hour for the aircraft. So mine was uh, roughly $180 an hour. And the rental varies all the way from 90 to $100 an hour. Can go all the way up to 300 to $400 an hour.
0: Okay. For that's purely rental.
1: That's just renting an aircraft for one hour. Instructor costs can go up anywhere between $80 an hour all the way up to... to $300 an hour. So my instructor, uh, I I paid $100 an hour. So in total, I was paying roughly $300 an hour for one session of, for one hour of flight training. Hmm. Okay, so now we covered how much it costs, like to rent an aircraft and how much the instructor uh, charges. Now, if you had to multiply that into the average number of hours you need to get your license, like the license that I got, which is your private pilot license, that ranges from, let's say, 60 hours can go all the way up to 150 hours. Okay. 60 hours is the bottom, like the lower limit, 150 hours. Even 200 hours actually is the upper limit. So I got my license in under 80 hours, so about 78 hours. So if you multiply 300 into, say, 70.
2: Twenty-five
1: thousand, Yeah, $25,000. So that's what it costed me to get my license all the way from zero to 80 hours. And how long is it valid? So licenses are actually valid lifelong, private pilot licenses. Uh, But you need to keep them current in that uh, I need to have at least one takeoff or landing. I need to have at least three takeoffs and landings in the last 90 days to keep my license valid. That's one. And once every two years or in 24 calendar months, I need to go through a flight review in that a certified instructor just flies with me and confirms that, you know, I'm safe to fly and says, okay, this guy is is good to go. So those two criteria you need to meet to keep your license current.
0: Okay. And what if
1: you don't keep it current? You have to give a test again? It lapses. it It, It lapses. You don't have to give the test again. You have to do the three takeoffs and landings to sort of re uh, ah got it start, uh, sort of revalidate it.
0: <laughs> so how what what's the whole process of learning? We have the overview of how much it costs, what are the number of hours you need to spend on it, and everything. But in terms of the actual learning process, or let's say think of it as a course. So what's the course structure like?
1: That's an that's an interesting question because. At least in the US, it varies by how your instructor wants to proceed with training you. In my scenario, the first day I met my instructor, so I just walked into this club at the front desk. I was like, hey, I want to learn to fly. They're like, oh, yeah, we have a bunch of instructors just chilling here. I saw one instructor. (laughs) I was like, hey, I want to learn to fly. And then I sat with him. He was like trying to explain the basics of flying to me. I was like. Hold on, I know all of this. <laughs> I've been watching plane videos since I don't know forever. So I was like okay. He was like, let's do a discovery flight. So we went, we did like a discovery flight. Now a discovery flight is where like you pick the aircraft that you want to learn to fly in. Uh, so I knew which aircraft I wanted to learn to fly in. I didn't want to learn to fly in like a Cessna, which is a high wing aircraft, which is the most used aircraft for private pilot flying. I wanted a low-wing aircraft, which which is called a Diamond Star, and something that had digital flight instruments. So I was like, yeah, this is the aircraft I wanted to fly. So we did a Discovery flight. I sat in the captain's seat. We took off and everything. He let me take controls of the flight once we were airborne and stuff. Let me play around with the stick and get a feel of the aircraft and everything.
0: This wasn't your first flight?
1: It was the first flight. Uh, okay. He let me. He he let, kind of let me taxi all the way to to the runway. So for taxiing, you need to use the rudder pedals. Uh, you can't taxi with the with the stick. <laughs> yeah. So so rudder pedals for for those who don't understand. So if you go boating, you use rudder pedals to sort of steer the boat. It's the same concept in an aircraft as well on the ground. And I was going way off. <laughs> I was just zigzagging the fuck out of it. So yeah, I was obviously like very overwhelmed and and shit, but. Yeah, by the time I landed, I was like, fuck, this is exhausting. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but isn't so, it
2: scary that you did that, like, on your first test exploratory flight? Like, is that even allowed?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's allowed in the sense that you have an instructor sitting next to you to take o- take control at any point in time, right? It's not like uh, you know, you get to do it by yourself. So at points that I was obviously, like crossing the boundaries of safety, that's when the instructor steps in and you know takes control. The first thing that they teach you before you even start the aircraft is positive exchange of controls. So when the instructor says my aircraft, that's when I need to let go of all the controls and say your aircraft and vice versa. When he gives the controls to me and says your aircraft, I need to say my aircraft so that he lets go of the controls, and I have full controls. Okay. So that expectation is set in the beginning. So right from the start, uh, some so instructors prefer like doing two things. One, they do groundwork, or they expect the student to do groundwork, or they do it together, and then they get into the aircraft. With my instructor, we didn't do any groundwork. Right from day one, so after I what is the dis- groundwork? so groundwork is going through the basic fundamentals of like flight for that airwork session, which is today. Okay, today is day two of flight training. On day two, we're going to practice maneuvers in the air. Now, what are maneuvers? What are the controls that you use to you know change maneuvers and and things like that? Uh, so doing that groundwork first, like obviously on the ground, as the name suggests, and then you get into the aircraft and you practice all of that with your instructor. With my instructor, it was like, okay, today we're doing air work and we just jump into the aircraft. I wouldn't know what the fuck like that meant, but we would just go up in the air and I would figure it out. And that was A very hands-on extre- teaching extremely style. hands-on. And there was the expectation that I would do all of the studying on like away from the aircraft, like on the ground in my own time before every session. Mm. But he wouldn't actually give me any specifics to uh, learn or read up about uh, I would just ask him, okay, what are we going to do in the next uh, training session? He would be like, okay, we're going to probably go to this airport, practice a bunch of takeoffs and landings. I would just go back home, watch YouTube videos, <laughs> private pilots taking off and landing. <laughs> <laughs> so, seventy to eighty percent of my like learning was YouTube, just watching videos. There are obviously. So you're
0: telling that anybody, if people spend enough time on YouTube, they can just get into a plane and fly it.
1: Yeah. Very, very, very
0: easily. <laughs> Just to make it clear, listeners, none of us here recommend it.
1: <laughs> so, there are actually, there's a there's shit ton of books that you need to read through for flight training. There are a lot of books around, like the basic fundamentals of flight, like aerodynamics, physics. Do you read
2: any of these books?
1: Zero. <laughs> 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 I can show you the books that I bought. Way deeper into my flight training when I had to prepare for the tests. (laughs) That's when I got the books. But through the course of training, it was just YouTube. It was just, you know, the interwebs. Uh, Which, again, varies from person to person. I don't recommend it. It worked for me. I prefer video training versus like textbook reading. Uh, yeah, my instructor probably thought that I was doing a lot of reading. Like sometimes when I would do like a good landing or something, he's like, Man, you're you're studying well. Like that's really good. I was like, should I tell him like I'm not really reading the books <laughs> and it's all <on> YouTube. <laughs> but yeah, I didn't break it in. He still thinks that I did a lot of studying before our <laughs> before our training wow. session. Send him the link to this podcast then we'll see. I hope he doesn't discover yeah. this. <laughs> but yeah so to to summarize like your question i most of my training was hands-on like from day one i was given the controls to do like the basic maneuvers and and stuff and then as i got comfortable i was taking more control of the aircraft so by like say the 10th or like 12th hour i was fully controlling all parts of the aircraft like doing pre-flight checks taxing takeoff landing was probably the only part where is also like the most difficult part of flying so that's something that I want to call out as well take off taxing maneuvering in the air is pretty easy Uh, you get the hang of it in like maybe the 5th or 6th training session but landing is the toughest part and that's the part that I took maybe good 20-30 hours to like nail until I could start flying on my own
2: so this is like as easy or similar as uh, learning how to drive a car right Yeah. Everything more or less is fairly easy, but you are the, the the two places where you take a lot of time is parking and reversing in this case, I guess it's landing and taking off
1: maybe. <laughs> I love your analogy I love
2: it yeah, you make it sound so easy that you need f- you need five hours of classes and a bunch of YouTube videos and you can start flying. That's exactly how you put it. <laughs>
1: I also, want, I also want to caveat that I'm a genius in this. Like, I was born to be a pilot. So, my training hours cannot be compared to average mortals. So, uh, just calling that out as a <laughs> Okay,
0: okay mister.
1: No, no, I'm just Light kidding. Train okay, train expert. To actually uh, summarize it, I mean, the, the basic fundamentals of flying are pretty easy to grasp. What's harder is, as I mentioned, like, the landing piece and all of the... Rules and regulations around flying. So some of the those things are just like airspaces and uh, studying aviation maps. That's one uh, navigation, which is obviously connected to maps. Like how do you navigate uh, just using a map and uh, a compass? How can you read the weather? So meteorology. How can you just look at the sky and tell if the weather is going to be good or bad? How will the winds affect your route of flight? These like meteorology in itself is a big portion of training, uh, which you can go so deep into just to understand the impacts of the weather on flying. Same thing with navigation, very deep subject. Same thing with flight rules. So you can't just fly around, you know, an airspace once you take off. Even in the United States, every airport has its own airspace, has its own jurisdiction. You cannot enter an airspace at your will you need to get the right permissions and you need to follow protocols to enter a certain airspace and things like that. So those are like the additional foundational pieces that you need to get a strong grasp on to be able to fly with more confidence. So that is independent of like, you know, just understanding how to turn an aircraft from left to right or being able to take off or land. And and that's the part that requires more reading up which you need to do in your own time.
0: So it's, it's, a, it's a lot more than five sessions of flight. Yeah, and, uh,
1: it's a lot more than just learning to operate an aircraft. There are a lot of external elements that affect your, your flight or your, your, your plan of uh, flight. So I learned a lot about the weather through the course of my flight training, which I don't think I would have learned before. I learned a lot about aerodynamics. I learned a lot about airspaces. I learned a lot about navigation. So the, whatever you learn about navigation through learning to fly, you can apply it in your day-to-day lives. Like if you don't have Google Maps, can you navigate by just using a simple map and a compass? Those are things that you can actually apply in, in you know, normal day-to-day life. So that was eye-opening for me, apart from, you know, just wanting to take a plane up in the air.
0: Nice. So let's speak a little about navigation. How different is it to navigate How much more complex or how can you compare navigating, let's say on a road trip to flying a plane?
1: Great question. I can give you three uh, factors that impact road navigation and aviation navigation. The first one is in aviation, we use a compass. Now a compass follows like, is is obviously follows like the the magnetic uh, fields of the earth. Now, if you if you may be aware that the magnetic poles of the earth change very often. Yeah. So there is true north, which is the true north pole that's marked on top of like a map. And there's a magnetic north, which is actually different from the true north. And it keeps uh, moving and shifting. So if I create a flight plan using a map, and once I take off and fly, my compass is showing me the magnetic north, But my entire flight plan that I made is based on true north.
0: Oh, so there will be that degree of difference.
1: Exactly. And I could be completely off course. (laughs) My compass is telling me I'm flying a certain compass direction. Let's say 06 degrees or let's say 60 degrees. But the true north relative to the true north, that could probably be uh, 50 degrees because of the 10 degree variation. So now I'm flying completely 10 degrees off and could be in a completely different place than what I had intended to plan. So A, you need to know that magnetic variation can impact your your route of flight and you need to consider that when you're chartering your flight plan. So that's one. The second thing is the speed of winds and the direction in which the winds are, are coming from. So you could be flying in a straight line, but if the winds are coming from the left, your uh, your nose tends to turn to the right a little bit and that could put you off course so you could actually, and you won't realize it and you won't realize it so you need to account for the wind direction and the impact it can have on the aircraft and you need to correct for it so if let's say a 5 knot wind is coming from the left it could turn your nose in the direction by say 2 or 3 degrees and you need to account for that wind correction angle while you're making your flight plan as well because your nose could start pointing in a different direction, but you could be tracking the the direction in which that you want to fly to a certain destination. So, so aren't there like
0: gauges or meters in your plane, instruments in your plane that tell you that you're off
1: course? So that's the thing. This is like worst case scenario. Let's say those gauges or instruments fail. How are you going to determine that there is a wind correction angle that you need to consider, right? You could still have a compass you could still have a compass heading that tells you which direction you're going in. And that's it. So let's say if you only have the compass, how will you navigate? And let's say all of your other instruments have failed. You still need to be able to make those calculations without relying on the other instruments that do that for you. So wind is one. And the third one is uh, airspeed. So airspeed is different from ground speed. So the airspeed is calculated based on your speed relative to the air while you're flying. And and there's also speed that's tracked relative to the ground, which is your ground speed. And so you need to make those conversions to assess relative to the ground speed, how much time will you take to get from point A to point B. Your airspeed indicator will not necessarily show your ground speed, it'll show your airspeed. You need to make the conversion to see what your ground speed is relative to that airspeed to be able to assess how much time you're going to take to reach from point A to point B.
0: So an airspeed could vary from day to day?
1: Yes, it'll it'll vary based on altitude and weather. So yeah, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So the air pressure varies at like different altitudes. So it can vary depending on what altitude you're flying at. So you need to make the conversion of the airspeed to ground speed based on your altitude to be able to assess uh, what your actual ground speed is to get from point A to point B.
0: So much much you did, (laughs) Bhatma.
1: Yeah, it's so annoying. (laughs) Fuck. Man, when I was was doing all of these calculations for my first, like, cross-country, I was like, holy shit. (laughs) Luckily, luckily, there's something called a a flight computer, which is like a scientific calculator, but for aviation. So you just need to enter Uh. the fields, and it does the calculation for you. So I just need to enter, like, what the airspeed is that I'm seeing it'll tell me what my ground speed is automatically. (laughs) I obviously need to enter the other factors, like my altitude and like temperature and blah, blah, blah. And it will tell me what the ground speed is. I was like, thank God for this calculator. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it requires a lot lot of like quick maths. I wouldn't say that if you're bad at maths, you can't become a pilot. I suck at maths. Like I've failed in maths, like a lot of times I can't even remember. But these aids help you in making those, like, basic calculations. So, yeah, it's still possible. So, to summarize, yeah, there are, like, three things. Navigation that you mentioned. One is obviously the magnetic variation. Second is uh, obviously uh, the the wind, uh, the impact of the wind that can have on on how you're navigating. And the third thing is uh, uh, airspeed relative to ground speed and how that impacts your uh, uh, time of flight. Got
2: it. What's your, uh, how, what's your longest flight and what's your shortest flight so far?
1: The longest has been, so as part of your training, you need to do a bunch of cross-country flights. Now cross-country is basically 50 nautical miles or more.
2: How much I is know. that in like regular kilometers and miles? My...
1: Google it, model. <laughs> <laughs> Just because I say I'm a pilot, I need to do mental math now. <laughs> <laughs> it is 92 kilometers. My flight computer would have. Okay, so it's a roughly. So yeah, I had to do a flight about uh, 15 nautical miles out. But the longest I did was from point A to point B, which was 15 nautical miles. And then I did from B to C, which was another 15 nautical miles. And then flew all the way back. So in total, hundred. Yeah, it was no, and flew all the way back. 200. So it's fifty plus fifty and coming back. So two hundred. Nice. So that was my longest that I did. And, tell Yeah. Us, it was, now,
2: now tell us some something fun about flying.
1: I can bust some <laughs> myths about flying. Do you have you have any myths like any questions that you think have been like memes or myths about flying? I don't know.
2: Everybody, Google Google. <laughs>
0: So, okay, so it's not a myth, but uh, how do you, like the altitude obviously takes a toll on your body, Mm -hmm. so how is your physical, how does flying affect you physically, especially when uh, it's obviously not like getting into the car and going on a uh, leisurely drive. Mm There are 101 factors that you need to consider and you need to be aware of at every given point of time. Mm -hmm. So even though I wouldn't call it stressful, there is a certain amount of tension that's there. On top of that, how it affects you physically in terms of different altitudes, different weather conditions, your body acclimatizing to it Mm -hmm. and all of that. Or is that bit, the physical stress bit completely taken away because of your pressurized cabins and all of that?
1: Okay, so I'll answer that in two parts. So one, the license that I have, which is VFR only, uh, you end up flying below the clouds. So more often than not, you fly maximum. And the kinds of aircrafts that you end up flying also on my license have a ceiling of roughly fourteen to 15,000 feet tops. And so, so most of them are not pressurized either. The only thing with altitude up to 15,000 feet is that you need oxygen after you cross, let's say, 10,000 feet. It is recommended that you get on oxygen. But once you cross, let's say, 12 or 13,000 feet, you have to be on oxygen. So if you have any sort of breathing disorders and things like that, then exceeding those altitudes on oxygen is not recommended. So that's one. So that's the altitude thing. Pressurized cabins, as I said again, like they don't have uh, an impact per se, unless you're crossing the threshold of 15,000 feet and above. That's when obviously the temperature also drops significantly. So you need that, that pressure to sort of balance the, I mean, yeah, just just balance the environment that you're in. So yeah, anything above 15,000 feet, yeah, it's, it's preferred that you fly in an aircraft that's pressurized. Now, the second part, which is basic physical requirements to become a pilot Ideally, you should not have any big disabilities or diseases that could affect your decision-making abilities or your uh, physical abilities of maneuvering uh, the aircraft. So, yeah, uh, you if you have any, say, let's say you, you have, like, an eye disorder where you're, let's say, a night blind or something of that sort, those are definite, like, no's. If you have, uh, say, history of... Uh, say um, what do you call it strokes that's pretty dangerous what if you get a stroke while you're flying so 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 things like that anything that can impact your ability to make a decision or maneuver the aircraft is a definite no no from a, a medical standpoint apart from that you need to pass a basic medical test per the faa's guidelines which is the regulatory body in the us every country has its own like medical requirements for pilots so Yeah, I had to go through a basic medical test. They check your blood pressure, check for any diseases, blah, blah, blah. They do an eye test. And yeah, if you pass all of that, you're good to go. And if I had to address the point of stress, every time I fly, it's super stressful. (laughs) At least like the first 40 to 50 hours of my training, after one hour of flight training, I would be exhausted. Like exhausted to the point that I, I actually had to like get a cup of coffee or some juice. get the energy to drive back home this is not physical exertion this is mental exertion because every time you fly there are additional factors that you need to start monitoring that you're being tested on that your instructor is keeping an eye out for so you want to give your best and so that takes a big big mental toll so trying to stay calm doing your groundwork being very well prepared of what to expect eating like i have noticed that not eating before a training session man like 30 minutes into the flight fuck i would have zero energy because your brain doesn't have any any like energy or any food to sort of convert to fuel so yeah making sure that i was like on a full stomach uh and things like that is, is something that i started to do but yeah overall training from person to person it varies for me personally it was super stressful But here's the thing, right? Like I went through all of this for to to learn to fly. And the question I keep asking myself is if one has to, you know, spend at least 70 to 80 hours learning how to fly, get certified, go through flight training, learn about weather, navigation, meteorology, blah, blah, blah. How on earth are we going to make flying cars a possibility? (laughs) How are 8 billion people on earth going to become pilots unless you're going to fully rely on AI and say, a computer is going to take care of all of this. I think but that's in the event... Gonna,
2: that's, I think that's what they are hoping it to be, right? It has to be complete yeah, autonomous.
1: Exactly. But you're never preparing humans for, like, fail failure states. Like, let's say, the AI malfunctions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, like, horrible failure states. But, yeah, that was a random sidetrack. But something to think about.
0: So, okay. Uh, so, you so to get your license, you did about 80 hours of flying, right? Mm-hmm. How many of that were you flying solo, and how many of that how much of that time was an instructor accompanying you?
1: Great question. So minimum requirement to give the private pilot's test to fly solo is 10 hours. So you need to have 10 hours of pilot in command, solo time in order to give the, give the test. So yeah, out of those 80 hours, 10 hours I flew solo. The remaining hours were either instructions, Or I was being tested. So through the course of my 80 hours, I had like two or three tests where another instructor would take me out and evaluate me.
0: So it was just based on your offline, how good you could gauge everything, how you could take all the external... Yeah,
1: the, the first milestone or like big milestone for any private pilot is going solo. Everyone works towards going solo as their like first milestone. So before going solo, you are another instructor sort of evaluates you on all of the requirements to fly the aircraft on your own Uh, so that was like my first big 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 milestone where i went through that test i was evaluated i was green-lighted to go solo uh, and then i started flying on my own
0: so once you started flying solo or not just solo even with your instructor were there any scary moments Oh yeah. yeah. You thought you lost control.
1: Holy shit, so like where I can think of
0: shit went down.
1: So here's the thing, like the two most stressful things for me while flying solo, especially to like newer airports, is sighting the airport. Uh so once you're coming into like getting into the airspace of an airport, you need to spot it first to be able to understand like how you enter the airport. So all of the airports have like a flight path that you enter in and come into land. You can't just like fly across and land however you want. Uh, (laughs) Exactly. So my, and this I noticed through the course of my flight training was every time I'd fly with my instructor, we'd go to an airport. he would be like, can you see the airport now? I'm like, no. And we'd get really close and only then I would like spot it. So that's always been my biggest fear, which is spotting the airport like from a good distance. And then the second fear has been obviously landing at a new airport that uh, where I haven't landed before. And as I said, landing is the toughest part of flying. And the reason why that's scary is because your depth perce- perception varies depending on the length and breadth of a runway. Every airport has a different length oh, and different yes. breadth uh, of a runway. So. I've been training, my early parts of training have been on a much smaller runway, which is extremely short. It's only 2,700 feet long and roughly 500 feet wide, I think if if I get it right, 500 to 600 feet wide. So I've been used to that airport, which is my home airport where I learned to train. Now, if I go to other airports, there are much bigger runways and my depth perception is completely off. So when I come into land, I might assume that, yeah, I'm going to touch the runway anytime now, but I'm actually 20 feet above the runway. And what what ends up happening is that the aircraft just sinks. It just sort of drops and hits the runway for that 20 feet. It doesn't like glide and touch down. Oh, okay. So the scary moment I had with one of the solo landings that I did at a far off airport in Modesto, I came in to land. Okay, I sighted the airport. I was like, oh, thank God, I can see it came into land and everything. And this part is called the round out. So when you're just about five or 10 feet above the runway, you round out. So you kind of get get in a nose down position and then you level it up and you get the nose up about 10 feet above the the runway. And so what I did is I ended up rounding out way above 10 feet. I was probably 20 feet high and the aircraft just sunk. So the tail went down first and you don't want to get a tail strike. you're landing if you get a tail strike that's really bad it could literally break the aircraft so i could see you know like from my vantage point i could see that the horizon completely went off i could feel the sinking sensation uh rare word i was like holy fuck, this is bad (laughs) and before i could like before the tail could actually strike the the runway i just added power and went around Uh, i was like "Fuck!" but then I realized, okay, now I, I sort of was able to recollect, okay, at this certain point that I rounded out too high, so now I can actually go lower and round out because the runway is actually wider and my depth perception needs to change. So yeah, the second time around, I, I made it. So yeah, that was a, a heart and mouth moment for me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, also, in those situations, like you don't have an instructor to, to sort of, you know, take controls, right? Say so, yeah, it ends up becoming scarier so yeah that was one big scary moment the second scary moment was i took off from the palo alto airport and normally the air traffic controller gives you directions as to after you take off at what point you can say turn right or turn left or continue going straight i assume so i actually was obviously stressed this was one of my early days of going solo so I took off. I actually, The air traffic controller gave me clear instructions. You take a right turn at point A, not point B. And I read back on the radio saying, yes, I'm going to take off and take a turn at point A and not point B. But I took off and took a turn at point B. <laughs> and there was an aircraft coming from the opposite direction on a collision course with me. <laughs> Holy crap. So, So that, and we're all on a common frequency, right? So that guy was like, whoa, and you know, he was like, hey, I have an aircraft in front of me and I'm taking evasive action to steer away from it. And the air traffic controller came on saying, called out my call sign. So I was flying this aircraft called 739 or Delta Sierra, called out my call sign and said, sir, I asked you to take a right turn at point A and not point B. I was like, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> so I went onto the radio and said, I'm sorry about that. And continued my flight. path. But,
0: but yeah, you need to be. So what happens when you don't listen to your air traffic controllers or something like what's the worst that can happen yeah the worst is you might just <laughs> collide with some that's other flying object right. <laughs> no like do you get penalized or are they like points on your license or something like that uh,
1: it it really depends right so uh depends on the airspaces as well so i was flying in like the palo alto airspace which is called a class delta airspace Uh, Now there, they're already aware that, you know, a lot of people are learning how to fly. So they have a slightly more flexible threshold for okaying like four paths, which is fine. But in like more serious airspaces, especially if you're carrying, you know, like hundreds of people on an aircraft, like, let's say you're flying in the San Francisco airport airspace or San Jose. Now, those are class Bravo and class Charlie. Now, when I say classes, I mean like jurisdictions in terms of like lot major jurisdiction and super strict all the way to lesser jurisdiction, not very strict. So obviously, the bigger airports have a larger jurisdiction of airspace and a lot stricter. So if I did the same thing, let's say if I was trying to land in San Francisco, big, big no-go. Like, those air traffic controllers be like, fucking asshole. And they'll give me a call, phone number to call and actually talk to a person who'll have a conversation with me. And, uh, you know, potentially I could be a ding on my license depending on the intensity of not, not following instructions. Okay. In this case, it was like, yeah, I, like there were a lot of aircrafts in the pattern just above the airport. So they are like, okay, we understand, you know, this can happen. Also, I quickly went on the radio and apologized. Uh, if there are other Pilots who are like, oh fuck you, like you, I, you gave me wrong instructions, blah blah blah. That would mean that okay, they're going to give you a phone number that you need to call, which could be an air traffic control manager or a supervisor who you need to resolve those conflicts with.
0: So there is a potential for ding on your license, oh, yeah, you yeah getting your license revoked and stuff like that. For sure,
1: and there will be a, a, an evaluate a, a committee that will evaluate. Okay, whose fault was it? Like, was it the air traffic controller who didn't give clear instructions, or was it the pilot? In my case, it was obviously me, like I was given clear instructions, but I just didn't, I wasn't uh, aware to to follow it. Yeah, it's actually fun to hear like radio communication sometimes where you can tell, okay, okay, this guy is a student, uh, this guy is a pro, you can quickly pick them up in just radio chatter. So now you are talking about
0: different airspaces, different jurisdictions and all of that, right? so from what i know i understand that it's not as simple as just picking an airplane and flying wherever you want to you have to share where you're going how far you're going what's the route you're taking and all of that just to make at least with their traffic control i'm assuming yep. so that they understand what are the permutations combinations around your flight path whether it's clear it's not there could be someone else whatever it is So how does that work when you're getting out of an airspace and getting into another airspace? How does the, what do you say, I'd say even a handoff between that air traffic control tower and the next air traffic control tower happen? Or does that happen or is it automated or what?
1: So it depends, right? So if you file your flight plan early on, it's automated. Uh, Because everyone in, like every air traffic controller in that radius has your flight plan. They know when you're going to take off, they know what route you're going to take, and they know when you're going to enter their airspace. So the handoff starts happening automatically. So right after I take off from let's say Palo Alto Airport, if I'm going towards let's say Napa, through from Palo Alto to Napa, I could be transitioned across like three uh, controllers. And so the Palo Alto Airport traffic traffic controller will tell me to tune into a different frequency to talk to the next controller. And the next controller already has my flight plan. So he or she knows like which direction I need to take, uh, what altitude I want to maintain until I'm handed off to the next controller. This is when you f- file a flight plan before you take off. Now, if you don't file a flight plan, if you just take off, you tell the first air traffic controller, Palo Alto, which direction you want to go in. Then after you cross their jurisdiction, they're gonna tell you to change to whatever frequency you want depending on which direction you want to go in because they don't know your flight plan. They're just gonna say, you're out of our airspace. You have authorization to switch to whatever frequency you want. Now it's up to you to decide which airspace you want to enter depending on the direction you want to go in. And now you need to call that airspace's radio frequency and tell them, hey, I want to enter this airspace. This is the direction I want to go in. And then they'll either authorize you or tell you not to enter the airspace.
0: Hmm. If they if they say don't enter the airspace, then you can't. Then
1: you can't. Then you need to fly around their airspace and potentially get permission from uh, another controlling body in a different jurisdiction.
0: Okay.
1: I mean, more of, so. Here's the thing. I I mentioned Bravo Charlie Delta like airspaces like that, right? So it's actually in that order. So there's Alpha A Class A Class Bravo Charlie and Delta, and then there's uh, Golf and then there's Echo or Echo and Golf. Uh, And so Bravo and Charlie are airspaces of like the big high traffic airports, uh, which is your San Francisco International, London Heathrow, Delhi, Bombay, Hyderabad. Uh, Hyderabad may be a Charlie because of the, it's, it's a slightly smaller airport relative to say a Delhi and a Bombay. So jurisdictions for let's say private pilots to get into Bravo, are a lot lower because they're way higher traffic. The aircrafts that are flying are a lot faster in that airspace. So imagine trying to cram a slower aircraft amongst faster aircrafts. It's a lot harder, it's a lot complicated. So more often than not, Bravo is gonna say no, don't enter our airspace. So a lot of private pilots, we either fly through Charlie or Delta airspaces because it's easier to get through them. Bravo, we just try and stay out of because it's super high traffic and just a lot for an air traffic controller also to manage on space. Out. Like imagine, imagine like the, the, you sometimes see like two or three aircrafts coming into land, right? Like one behind the other. Yes. And they're coming in to land at, let's say, 180 knots. My aircraft, the one that I fly, comes to land in at 70 knots, which is slightly less than half, Right. So now I sl- more like one third so now I slow down like two or three aircrafts that are coming to land just because I'm way slower than them. And and they they can't drop lower than their landing speed. They have to maintain you know one eighty knots to come into land. If they come in any slower, that's dangerous. So what ends up happening is they need to go around. So all of these aircrafts need to go around now, because I have stopped them from coming into land. So yeah, air traffic control is like. Super complicated, but it's extremely fascinating also just to see how the entire yeah, system yeah, I works.
0: I play that air traffic control game on
1: my phone. Oh, wait, I, didn't <laughs> <say>. <laughs> I mean, I, so what actually helped me through the course of my flight training was just listening to ATC videos on YouTube, and there are a ton of them. And there's so <laughs> much fun. There's this one air traffic controller called Kennedy Mike, he cracks jokes, <laughs> throw out. So he's the he's a very famous controller in New York, in njf Kennedy Airport. And yeah, he's like a super funny air traffic controller. He cracks jokes like, oh, so what? You got a flat tire there? Are you going to get out and fix it? What's stopping you from taxiing? <laughs> you know, stuff like that. <laughs> so yeah, just listening to constant ATC chatter helps uh, sort of uh, build your radio communication wow. knowledge as well.
0: Nice more well, nice very nice I
1: know I think we covered quite a bit right
2: very very yeah, yeah. informative. No, no. what is the one thing you don't like about flying now that you know how to fly Math apart from one mathematics one thing I but he has the calculator fly. so
1: so one thing I don't like about flying is actually limited to my aircraft like I want to fly a faster, more comfortable. More manoeuvrable maneuverable aircraft.
0: So so now that you have the license, can you just like go and just hire or rent any aircraft you want and fly it in that particular
1: class? Uh, yes, although... Uh, a single engine. It, it needs to be a single engine. And the second thing is every single engine aircraft like has different uh, handling characteristics. So the least I should do is I need to fly at least once or twice with an instructor. Who helps me get used to the handling characteristics of that aircraft. So they basically say, okay, if you're shifting from, let's say, driving a, a hatchback to driving an SUV, there are pretty big change, uh, handling characteristics that change there. So I fly, uh, drive the SUV with an instructor for, like let's say, one or two instances, and then he or she will be like, okay, this person is good to go. And then I can go out and rent that aircraft.
0: So it's mandatory that when you're shifting aircraft, you need to fly with an instructor.
1: Yeah, you need to get checked out on that aircraft. But it's 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 non, uh, it's trivial, it's, it's not too complicated. Because you know how to fly, right? You just need to get used to that aircraft and the button layouts and the systems. Right now, if most aircrafts have the G1000, which is the digital cockpit, then it's pretty straightforward, the transition of avionics. But yeah, just like basic handling characteristics and things like that is something that should be done with an instructor to be safe
0: dream aircraft that you'd want to fly
1: spaceship <laughs> i'm just kidding mm-hmm. i mean obviously like the, the sky is the limit there right? like you want to fly a fighter plane you want to fly like a gulf stream you want to fly uh that, that's, that's yeah it, like, will, really it
2: will fun. join spacex next
1: oh yeah uh, anyone listening to this podcast one million dollars i can get a seat to, to get, go to space So, my crowdfunding portal is open. My Venmo details, my messenger bank details, I will link in this podcast. So, please contribute to fulfill my dream.
0: Done. Half a million. There you go.
1: (gasps) Karan, I love you. Marry me. (laughs) Uh, But, yeah. So, what's next now that you've got the license? Uh, What's next? So, right now, I have a pretty long queue of friends who want tours, like tours of the Bay Area and stuff. So I think I need to go down that roster. Once that's done, once I've accrued like enough hours of flying on my own, then I'm going to start with my IFR training, hopefully in the next uh, month or so. So,
0: That's the instrument rating. That's
1: the instrument rating. So that's going to be interesting on its own because a lot of that training happens under the hood or in bad weather when i say under the hood that means that you actually wear a hood through which you can only see the instruments and you can't see anything outside uh, so you are forced to fly just using instruments
0: oh wow well, that's going to be interesting yeah
1: i actually found that to be easier because there are lesser things distracting you there are fewer things that you need to keep an eye on <laughs> so i'm actually looking forward to it uh, but how do you take off and land man without taking a look? So takeoff and landing. So normally IFR training is done in pairs. So two two students train in the same aircraft. When one student is under the hood, the other student is the lookout to keep an eye out and make sure that, you know, you're, you're flying safely. The takeoff and landing is not done under the, under the hood. You do the takeoff and landing, obviously, with visual references. But once you take off, let's say you reach about 500 feet and stuff, that's when you put the hood on and start your But yeah, as a kid, I had this goal of uh, starting a company that connects India and then the world by land, air and sea. So um, I wanted to first start like an interstate bus service, like a really luxurious, like an awesome experience. And then from there, transition to hovercrafts, which are amphibious vehicles. So you can actually get all the way up onto the shore, you know, take people in and, you know, uh, take the water routes to go from point A to point B and then move to airplanes or aircrafts and start an airline. So you build sort of this entire transportation ecosystem for people to move from point A to point B. Back then the concept of Hyperloop didn't exist, but maybe now in the ground transportation piece, Hyperloop could also be one of those cool things to think about. I mean, if you think about Tesla, Tesla is kind of almost there with SpaceX travel, with the travel on the ground, like full electric cars, like fully autonomous cars and Hyperloop. They just don't have like the, the waterways figured out yet until they come up with sort of a fully electric boat that's autonomous and stuff. That'll be pretty cool. So Tesla is almost there. Yeah, which is also why I'm kind of a Tesla fanboy. Not an Elon fanboy. Whoever might sort of jump on this podcast and be like, ah, Elon lover. But yeah. Oh yeah, I'm actually, I actually got my boating license. So yay, so that's a plus. I plan on uh, getting a sailing license, which is actually different from a boating license. So hopefully that as well. So I'm planning to get this done before I start my IFR training. So get my boating license. A stretch would be to get a skydiving license. But yeah, it's actually pretty cold now. It's the month of November. So jumping out of an aircraft at 14,000 feet is going to be fucking cold. So (laughs) maybe I'll park that one out for... The summer next year. But yeah, that, those are those are the licenses in a nutshell. The only license I might not get is the license to kill. But uh, we'll oh my look out for the next uh, 007 movie. <laughs> this is where we plug 007 releasing soon. What's the what's the name of the movie? I forget. No time to die. Is it no time? To
0: Ladies and gentlemen, Mohit, you get license to kill. Has a license, license in the air, on the ground, in the water. The only thing he doesn't have is a license to kill. MI6, if you're listening, your next James Bond.
1: I'm actually waiting for the next uh, MI7 movie, or is it MI8? I've lost count. One fun fact: before I uh, was uh, preparing for my um, my final pilot's test, like my final check ride, where you know you take the whole verbal and the uh, practical test. I was so stressed out. I actually hated the process of like studying and preparing for it because obviously, you know, it's nerves and stress, right? You're like, fuck this shit. Like, why am I even doing this? And then I was like, no, this has been my childhood dream. So every morning I would cue the new Top Gun trailer. (laughs) 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 And I would just watch the 10 minute trailer, which is basically a stitched up version of like the four trailers. And yeah, yeah, that was like my boom motivation like four days prior to my final test that kind of kept me going and helped me sort of realize why I was doing this. Awesome. Great. Great. I think on that note,
0: Mm -hmm. let's go ahead and wrap this up. If any of your listeners want to know more, you can hit up Mohit or ping us on our social media and he'll be happy to respond to any other queries you might have regarding your pilot's license queries.
1: Of course, and last uh, more, uh, more. piece of uh, last suggestion I would give anyone who's listening to this is: if you had any childhood dreams of like doing things that you thought were super cool at the age of ten, go ahead and do it. Live your childhood dreams. Yes,
2: definitely go ahead and do it. What a wow! What a wow! Turning dreams to reality, Mohit Raj Tolhasati. All
0: right, thanks a lot for tuning into this episode. Catch you next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning into the episode, hope you liked it and had as much fun as we did recording this. As always, uh, look forward to your comments on social media. Hope you subscribe to the Boiled Podcast, wherever you listen to your podcasts, we are available on multiple platforms including Spotify, Google Podcasts and anywhere else that you listen to your podcast. Our episode artwork is by the talented Renu at re underscore NGK on Instagram. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you in the next one. Take care.